You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. All right, again, Acts chapter 1, and then we'll be moving to Matthew chapter 9 pretty early on in the message. Uh, if you're new to our church, uh, you should know that uh, we love going through books of the Bible. We do that about three-fourths of the year. We just finished with Lamentations. Connor did an excellent job closing out that book last week. I'm excited for us to start the book of Hebrews right after Easter. But in between, we got two series, this one um, titled On Mission. And it's going to be breaking down Acts 1-8 that I'm going to read here in a moment here. Um, and it's going to be breaking that down of how that is true for us. But not only that, the emphasis with Missions Month that we have this year. So read with me Acts chapter 1. We're going to break down verse 8, but for context, let's read verses 6 through 11. It's also on the screens to the left and right of me as well. God's word says this when the church, uh, early church was just getting started. Um, so when they had come together, talking about disciples, they asked him, talking about Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? The, Jesus had now uh, died for our sins. He had rose from the grave. He's speaking to Pentecost has happened. He's speaking to his disciples one last time. And this is some of his final words after they gave this question. Verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So this is the ascension of Jesus he was resurrected from the dead, spent some time, gave some final words. Again, Pentecost, Holy Spirit has come. And now he has ascended into heaven. And when they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is the promise from the angels that he will return. But Jesus' final words... Again, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 was this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Let me remind you, when does the Holy Spirit come upon us? It's when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's when we come to hear and know, recognize that the gospel is true, that we are sinners, that sin separates us from a holy, loving God, that the consequences of such sin is spiritual and physical death. Jesus took that penalty, that sin, upon himself, so we did not have to. He took that sin upon himself, but then he rose from the grave, and out of his great love, he offers as a gracious gift to us new life in him, forgiveness of sin, and reconciliation, redemption, back with our Father. And not only that, when we repent, turn of our sin, turn from our sin, and have saving faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're not only forgiven and justified, but we receive this gift that Jesus had said, the Holy Spirit. And there's great power, as he says, in the Holy Spirit in many ways. But one such thing is that we will be Jesus's witnesses. Where? He says, in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so over the next few weeks, leading up to our kind of final missions offering Sunday, 
We're going to talk about each one of those. We're going to talk on, on February 26th what it means to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, the nations, the world. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to be sent as missionaries and witnesses to our Jerusalems, which is our city, our people that God has specifically sent us to. And then today, we're going to briefly talk about what it looks like to be witnesses to our region, to our state, and our country with an emphasis on having a burden for those that we're sent to, for the lost around us. And speaking of that burden, now let's go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to spend the, the rest of this time camped out in this text. For some of you, you may be familiar with it. It is Jesus displaying his burden for the lost around him, which should be our burden when we have him in our hearts and lives ourselves. Matthew chapter 9, starting off with verse 35. God's word says this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So Jesus right here is in the middle of doing ministry, doing everything God called him to do, sent him to do, what he has now sent, called us to do in many ways. And although we're not promised to see the crowds that Jesus saw and that he's going to describe here in the next verse in ministry, we do see crowds everywhere in our life, whether it's going to a, a, a ball game, whether it's going to our school, to work, people are all around us, even in the midst of what he has sent us to do in ministry that we do. And when we see those people around us, when we hear of the great crowds, do we have the same heart response as Jesus here? Look what verse 36 says. When he, talking about Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Now, that word compassion right there should stick out. I say that because this same Greek word used right here is the same Greek word that was used to describe how Jesus felt toward other people. It's the same Greek word that was used in the parable that he had shared of the prodigal son. When the father saw the son that had wasted the inheritance, but came running back to his father whose arms were open wide. And this is the word that was used for the father saying, I've been waiting. Come home. Let's celebrate because you're back. It's the same word that was used in Jesus' other parable in the great Samar for, the, for the Samaritan who saw the person that was robbed and abused, and when all the religious people walked right past them, and the Samaritan, it says this same exact word, had compassion for that person as they helped them out. It's the same word that was used when Jesus had raised someone from the dead, knowing that they faced the final consequence of sin in that spiritual and physical death. He had compassion on them when he wept and then raised him from the dead. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this about that word. This Greek word for compassion is the same in all these texts and refers most literally, listen to this, to the bowels or guts of a person. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core. This compassion reflects the deepest heart of Christ. 
I want to repeat that last word, I mean that last sentence. This compassion reflects the deepest heart of Christ. Jesus has compassion for people. The almighty, holy, perfect, and powerful God, when in human form, saw other humans around him and had great compassion for them. He was, as that Greek word means, moved with pity. Why? Well, I believe that answer follows the comma after them. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because, here's the why, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word harassed there doesn't mean what we maybe typically think of harassed, like abused or beaten. Instead, that word means troubled. They were facing troubles. They didn't have answers more questions than answers, and they were troubled. But not only are they troubled and had compassion on them for it, they were helpless. They were let down. They were cast down. They were without hope. In fact, that word helpless, the Greek word that's used there is the same Greek word to describe what Judas felt before he hung himself, recognizing what he did Selling Jesus away. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now listen, those last four words there, sheep without a shepherd, that really stuck out to me when I was finalizing kind of the manuscript of this sermon a few weeks ago. In fact, I started tearing up when thinking about it and writing this. I'd finished it on a Friday evening, late at night, right after all my kids went to bed. I had a great day with my kids that day and my family, but didn't start off great. In fact, I was kind of grumpy most of that day and annoyed. Uh, started off the morning kind of stressed. There was church stuff that I needed to sort out before leaving that next week. Um, I had to deal with like stupid car dealership stuff. You guys all know that stuff. And then on top of it all, when I had kind of planned to do these things, um, my kids got a snow day and there was no snow on the ground, okay? And so I, again, was annoyed because there was stuff I needed to do, but then when my kids are home, I need to spend time with them and be intentional with that time. And like I said, it, I was a little more annoyed than usual and uh, it ended up being such a sweet time with my family that day that by the time I got in God's word that night and then when I was praying to the Lord that night, um, I was worshiping the Lord and thanking him for the many good gifts that he has given me and specifically with my kids and my family. And, and, and my prayer, and I just remember this, I don't usually remember the majority of my prayers unless it's written down, but I remember this because right after I got done praying this, this is the text I dove into for sermon prep. And I remember saying to the Lord right before getting to this, God, thank you for being a good shepherd. God, I see how you are guiding and shepherding my kids. Thank you for that. I know a good shepherd protects, provides, guides, and leads. And God, thank you for doing that for my kids right now. Thank you, although you use me, you use others in with that, but it's not all on me. 
because you're the perfect good shepherd. Thank you, God. And I was worshiping him, thanking him for it. Those specific words. And then I get to this text. And I read, there are those who are out there that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As I just got done praying, my cup being full with joy, thank you for laying down your life as that shepherd, now guiding my kids as their ultimate good shepherd. What a relief that is. These words, harassed and helpless, stuck out. And of course, the next part, when he compares the lost crowd that he sees around them, like sheep without a shepherd. Church, have you ever been troubled and helpless? I know I've been there before. Like a sheep without a shepherd. If only they had a shepherd. Again, church, I ask, do you have a burden for those who not only don't know but need Jesus, the good shepherd, around them? Because it is very easy for us to become hardened to those around us, to those in our state, to those in our country. You know, it was a burden for the lost that started William Carey's journey, who has been known, called, referred as the father of modern missions, who was ultimately sent to the area that we are praying and giving to. And how that all started for him and with him was a burden, again, for the lost. As he took steps and became a minister, he was at a Baptist Association meeting, and again, his heart was being stirred for the nations and especially for the lost. And so he proposed in this Baptist Association meeting that they take more strategic efforts to reach the nations out of that deep burden for the lost when they were debating, quote unquote, whether the command given to the apostles to teach all nations was not binding on all succeeding ministers to the end of the world. So they're kind of debating about this. And so William Carey gets real passionate about, we have to go, we have to go. And then, as he was getting passionate about that, a hyper-Calvinist Baptist minister stood up and yelled out, quote-unquote, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And you would think that maybe William Carey would be discouraged by that, but instead that rebuke moved William Carey to study further in the scriptures and to develop an even greater burden for the lost. In fact, to the point that before he even went himself, he wrote a book on why we should be doing this. You want to know what the title of that book is? It became one of the most influential books, not only at that time for us today, when it comes to going and reaching the nations. Just so you know, some of the most influential Christian books of today are titles like Your Best Life Now and Wash Your Face. The title of this book was 
an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicality of further undertakings are considered. Okay, wash your face or three sentences that I'm not going to repeat right now. All written to show and share we must do something. He has sent us to go. Do you have a burden for the lost? Specifically, even as we talk about today, lost America. We see this from the Apostle Paul, of course. Acts chapter 17, when he saw all the false idols around him, it says his spirit was provoked. His heart was burdened and out of his spirit being provoked because they were worshiping gods that they did not know, that were not true, that was not going to answer. He preached the gospel and gave them the one true God. Later, he wrote in the book of Romans chapter 9 this with such a burden for those who do not know Christ, specifically talking about Israel or the Jews at the time. Romans chapter 9, he says... Verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So that first verse shows, like, he's not just trying to, it's not like the, the, the preacher's tall fishtail, you know? Like, they led two people to Christ. It turns into 500 people came to know Christ that day. Okay, this is the Apostle Paul saying, in my conscience, this is truly what I mean, how I feel. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself, I cannot believe the Apostle Paul wrote this. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I wish I was in their place receiving damnation of hell, cursed and cut off over them to receive it. Man, that is a burden for those who do not know Christ. That my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Wow. Paul not only wrote this but God chose it to be a part of our inspired, authoritative word to figure out how to apply that to our very own hearts and lives. Do you have a burden for the lost around you? You know, as we talk about the lost in our nation, in our state, in our country, you know that people really do not grow up in church anymore. You know that people today have pro probably the most, since the birth of America, the most negative stereotypes of it. In fact, a recent study reports, this was done 10 years ago, so it's a little outdated, probably worse now. But a recent study from 10 years ago said that currently just 16% of non-Christians in their late teens and 20s said that they have a good impression of Christianity. One of the groups hit hardest by the criticism is, of course, evangelicals. Such believers 
have always been viewed with skepticism in the broader culture. However, those negative views are crystallizing and intensifying among young non-Christians. That study from 10 years ago shows that only 3% of 16 to 29-year-old non-Christians express favorable views of evangelicals. This means that today's young non-Christians are eight times less likely to experience positive associations toward evangelicals than were non-Christians of the boomer generation. And with these statistics that are projected across the adult population, again, the numbers are staggering. An estimated 73 million adults are presently unchurched, and then when teens and children are added, the total swells to roughly 100 million Americans. Again, do we have a burden for those who do not know Christ and view it and the opposite of what they can receive as harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. In fact, two questions I want you to figure out in your community group, discuss and talk a little bit about, is what gives you a burden for the lost? How can you stir up such emotions and affections and the compassion that we see not only from the Apostle Paul, but rooted in Jesus? And what action steps do you need to take? Speaking of action steps, look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Remember when he says this, that harvest that he says is plentiful is, there's a lot of people that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had just described having a great burden and compassion for them. Again, that word, that in his innermost gut. Look at them. Like sheep without a shepherd. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That too many of us have too small of a vision. Too many churches have too low of expectations of what God can do. In fact, going back to William Carey, the modern kind of father of missions, one of his most famous quotes is, expect great things from God and attempt great things from God. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we must ask, we are commanded, we're demanded to ask, why are the laborers few? I believe it's because As Christians, and I'm speaking for myself as well, we can be very selfish in general, but also in churches particularly. Often we exist simply to gather together for friendship and fellowship, for fun. And the truth is that Christians should, of course, gather loving one another, living in community, serving one another. But the church exists in large part, if not primarily, Two, be edified and built up so that we are sent out. To introduce people who don't know Jesus to Jesus. The laborers should not be few. It's God that does the work and the growth. But we are commanded and sent to work and go and share out of that burden. You know, one thing I always appreciated, always loved, 
about where we came from in set, with Centerpoint Church, uh, late pastor Tim Parsons who started it, he would often say, at least, I'd, I'd hear it at least a few times a year, I never want to be the church that's in maintenance mode. I never want to be the church that is just coasting. We got everything, the finances are there, the numbers are there. And not because I want to get larger and better, but because I want people to receive Christ. And I remember when he'd say that often, and as he'd say that, he's like, because if we ever get to be a church that I feel like, not again, that we're growing in numbers, but that people aren't coming to know Christ, that we are at least faithful to doing what we can to share that message with others, I don't want to be the pastor anymore. And I know sometimes in the many years I served, I'd have other staff and they'd be like, oh man, this just means we need to work harder. <laughs> and I remember in my heart of hearts thinking, man, I will follow him because I feel the same exact thing. I never want to be in maintenance. I want to do everything I can for people to hear and receive being harassed and helpless the sheep without a shepherd can receive the good shepherd again because honestly without realizing it I do know that myself and that all of us can get very selfish you know sometimes we don't want our church to grow maybe we don't want to lose our place in the organization as new opportunities arise for others we don't want to have to figure out the space issues have to relocate some things maybe we don't want to give up our offices so that more kids can be able to come over here we have somebody that's going to be coming and serving with us that that in many large parts gave up finances to be a part of a mission to reach people but we don't want to make those sacrifices sometimes we don't want to serve passionately, give generously, so that more people would come to know Christ. And it is a sin to repent of. Because as Jesus says here, the harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers that are few. Again, church, I don't know about you, but I want to work hard to show that those who are helpless and harassed sheep without a shepherd can have the perfect good shepherd that will protect them, that will provide for them, that will guide them and lead them and love them sacrificially. I want them to have that. And again, that starts with a burden. That's how it started with William Carey. He went but as he was in India, he recognized the difference in culture and religion. And do you know what he said really started driving him to reach the lost around him? It was, the, it was when he observed blatant idolatry in India that deeply influenced both him and those he influenced, his colleagues and the other co-partners co and missionaries, specifically atrocities like widow burning. And their religion and that culture. If you were a widow, they burned you at the stake at the time. And as he saw that, he worked to overturn the cultural and religious snares of Hinduism, despite great physical needs all around him. In fact, in the most popular biography written about him, Timothy George said this William Carey didn't seek mere cultural or legal change. 
he prioritized what was most important, the preaching of the gospel that transforms hearts and societies. God's glory and humanity's lostness were the primary motivations for Carey's mission. And he became a laborer. In fact, he at one point had said, if he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this will be too much, but I know one thing, I can plot. I can work. And again, church, I just have to ask. I just have to ask. And I don't want this, as even Connor prayed, like to be so heavy, so convicting. I haven't been doing anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'm praying and hoping that this will give you a hopeful joy to be obedient to the Lord, to become a burdened laborer. But that starts with the burden. Just like when William Carey saw the worst atrocity in some of the consequential effects of, of Hinduism, it actually stirred something within him to love them even more and try to reach them. And I have to ask, do you have that? I don't think we do all the time. You know, coming back from a vision trip in Brazil, one of the first things that I saw all across my newsfeed was the Grammys. I'm liking it a lot better because the last few days I'm seeing nothing but the Asbury revival stuff. I'd much rather see this than this picture, which I came home to, and this is all that I saw on my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram things. And as this kind of, and everybody else talked about this, I couldn't but help to think, what is the Christians' reactions as they're posting about this? Did we become burdened or outraged? And listen, there's a place for outrage. There is. I understand that. I know that. But does that outrage turn into action of, I want people to know Jesus Christ out of this? Or does it turn us into complainers or being fearful? Listen to me right here. Do we have a burden that leads us to action of saying lost people that do not know Christ act like lost people that do not know Christ? And oh, how I wish as they are harassed and helpless that they can receive the shepherd to lead them. Or do we complain and get fearful? Are we burdened laborers? Church, again, I don't know about you, but I want to be a burdened laborer. My prayer is that this church becomes burdened laborers, expecting people to be lost, but then driven to reach. You know, again, as I saw that picture and some of the responses with and for it, I had to ask myself, well, what is worse? A showy choreographed ode to Satan and LGBTQ or people literally burning their widows. Whatever the case, I believe the response should be the same, a burden and a work for the gospel. And know that some of that labor is not just us going, but I believe with all my heart, we are and should next week as we'll talk about our own Jerusalem, but for some of us, it's going to be supporting and equipping, praying and giving 
In fact, prior to 1792, formal organizations for gospel advancement when it comes to international missions, it was limited mainly to the the Moravians and the Roman Catholic orders. But through the work of William Carey, the book that I'm not going to read again, and his influence where he directly called for people to be rope holders to organize the sending and supporting of missionaries so that those who are called to go can be able to go. Following that work, what he wrote, and that call, women, youth, denominations, and non-denominational groups were organized, formal societies that came out and sent larger numbers than any time before of missionary work to reach the nations a movement that continues through countless missionary organizations today. In fact, some of you may ask, what do we as a church support and give to some of the laborers and such work? You'll hear that each week, actually. You'll hear about the Jerusalems that your regular giving goes to to support for Jerusalem and then the week after the nations. Some when it comes to our state and country. So you know, when it comes to social care for our country and meeting social needs, we give to Kentucky Baptist Disaster Relief and Send Relief, which again, does a large, great, great work when it comes to social care in the country. When it comes to evangelism needs, we give to the the KBC. Um, And then when it comes to church planning, we give to the North American Mission Board. Again, we must ask, being the rope holders, praying, giving toward that, helping support, What else can we do and do I have a burden for it? Verse 38, to conclude. After seeing harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd, after saying the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, coming out of that burden and compassion they had for them, then the action here in verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. So what does he say we should do out of that burden? Knowing that the harvest is plentiful, but there's not many taking action, what's the burdened response we should do? Pray and go. That's what he says here. Pray to the Lord as he sends out laborers. Pray and go doing what we did here for the lost, praying for the lost around us, praying for ourselves. And it should lead to what Jesus sends us out to do, to obey and go. And church, it's scary if we do not do those two things, pray and go. doesn't mean every person's going to go with international missions, but you were sent, as you'll hear next week, to the neighbors, co-workers, classmates, people, in your lives. Go. And again, it's scary if we don't. It really is. If we don't pray for the lost and believe and live out sent missional lives that starts with that burden for them, well, we start clinging to the gospel for our own personal piety. We start hiding our lights under the bushel. The great, needed, good news of the gospel stays at home with our family maybe within our church, with our Christian friends, because salvation becomes a place to end instead of a place to begin. And listen to me, know this. Eventually we will become so dated and removed from people in our world 
that this church will just become a museum dedicated to the past. Have any of you guys ever been a part of a church like that? No efforts to reach the lost of today, stuck in its glory days. You can't touch this, you can't go here because it reminds you of what happened 30 years ago. I will not be that. We're not going to do that. Pray and go. But that does not happen unless the compassion Jesus has is recaptured in your very own hearts. The burden he had for you that led him to the cross to die for you, to rise from the grave, to offer in salvation, to receive. But now he uses and sends us as those witnesses with great power to share with others. Pray and go. Will everyone close their eyes and bow their heads? Will you spend just the next few moments with the Lord talking to him? Asking him to give you that burden. If you don't have it, again, ask. Ask him to get rid of the certain barriers in the way. Remove the things that is causing you to either be fearful and protective instead of burdened. Maybe to be outraged and angry instead of compassion like Jesus has. And if you do have that, Will you pray for those that are in your lives or that we support and your place in the going where God may be leading you to go, to share, to invite, to be that witness with all power of the Holy Spirit, whatever the Lord is leading you to. And if you are, again, out there and you do not know Christ and if anything, what he is sharing, what he's speaking to your heart today is that great burden he has for you. And maybe there has been Christians in the past that has been the exact opposite of what you just heard Jesus not only was, but is in what he gave himself in the gospel. And you recognize you need him. And like the father, with his arms wide open, say, I created you for this, and come back home to me. I want to encourage and plead with you. Like Paul pleaded for those who did not know Christ, receive him. Are you harassed and helpless because of that sin? You cannot do it yourself and on your own. And out of his great grace, he offers himself to make a way back to him. Place your faith in him, what he did for you out of love on the cross, the power and proof in the resurrection. Turn from your sin, give him your life, make him your savior. And just like what was promised, the Holy Spirit, not only for eternity, but that will guide you today so that you will have a shepherd. Do what God is leading you to do. And then we're going to sing. We're going to sing about the great vision that this God of glory and compassion we have. Speak to him now.
Father, I know that this, I know this is a heavy kind of feel and spirit, heavy topic because I know God, and I'm, God, you know I'm speaking for myself. I know it feels like we're not doing enough. And God, I, I pray, Lord, I know that with the heaviness of that, Lord, I'm reminded of your words. All who are troublesome and weary, who are burdened in such ways, come to you. You want to relieve that. God, let us know and trust you've done the work already for us. You just want to simply use us. There's great power in what you've already given us. The Holy Spirit that's in every single professing believer, true, genuine believer, adopted into your family. And God, I know there's many. They could give testimony to how great you are, how much they love you, how they've seen you at work in their lives in spite of certain trials and hardships. But God, God, I know, Lord, there is burden labor that you have sent us off to do. And if somebody didn't do it for us, we may have never been received into your fold. God, maybe that's parents in this room that forsake the world and taught their kids Jesus. Maybe that's pastors and disciplers and, and group leaders that made certain sacrifices, again, so that we can have and receive the sheep, the shepherd, as we were wandering as sheep. But God, I do ask that you use us, that you use us in the midst of this. And it starts with that burden. God, as we sing about you being our vision, I pray, Lord, that that's true. That the vision that we have of you is that compassionate, loving Savior that you want to use us as witnesses to with others. God, let this be a renew and revival within our very own hearts and church to be that witness. God, may you answer the prayers of repentance and renewal in this room today. We pray this all in your name, Jesus.